Welcome back to the Cyclotist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Monday, May 23rd, a rest day at the Giro, which is the perfect time to talk about all the stuff that happened over the weekend, plus what's coming up in the last week of the race, and a little tidbit from Burgos, uh, maybe some, maybe a little, little preview of what's to come later this summer from the final stage of Burgos, I think. Talk about that later in the show. Welcome back, everybody. Shoddy Dave, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm good. I'm hoping I sound all right today because I sounded terrible on the podcast the other day. I think I've got my mic working. If I haven't, please send all abuse to what's your email address, Kaylee? <laughs> <laughs> Shoddy at Dave. Uh, Shoddy dot Dave at cyclingtips.com. Something like that. That's actually not your email address. And it, no. it, it's the same thing in Slack. And it, it gets me every single time I want to contact you because I just start typing in Shoddy. And I it obviously Slack can't find you because your actual name is not Shoddy. Uh, confuses me every single time. Ronan, how are you on this fine Monday? Good, yeah. Just uh, another week. Another week. Another mm. week. But actually, somehow I remembered this morning. It's like 10 years to the day since a uh, fairly, fairly big stage. In my racing times, uh, I, I had no idea how it came to mind. But just this morning, it popped up. So that was weird way to start the week. I saw I saw your Instagram post. Tell tell us about the day. This is an important thing. Yeah, it was the the Ross, the kind of Tour of Ireland or unofficial Tour of Ireland. I, I probably have some Irish people want to kill me for calling it the Tour of Ireland, but the Ross anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I uh, had been a long time trying to win a stage, and that was the first stage in a long time to finish in my home county of Donegal and up until about 100 meters from the line I was set to win the stage until I got swamped by the point sprint behind and caught uh, within touching distance of the line so close to the line I think I still rolled like 10th in the sprint without pedaling so <laughs> it couldn't have got much oh. closer after spending 76k solo um, so it was a yeah it was a rough enough one is it is that a, is that a at this point, 10 years on, is that a happy memory or a sad memory? I was trying to work that out this morning and I can't remember. It's, I, I can't, <laughs> like, you know, undoubtedly without that performance that day, I wouldn't have went to world championships, wouldn't have done quite a lot of things. And, you know, who knows what direction your whole life goes in if you have won something instead of, again, not having won. But at the same time, it would have been quite nice to say I'm a Ross stage winner. It doesn't mean much to probably the vast majority of the audience listening here, but would have been a big deal for me. So, I don't know. Good and bad. It means a lot, mate. That race is solid. I only ever raced it once, and I spent most of it in um, either out the back or in a toilet. I lost a lot of weight. I won't go into <laughs> into why, but, yeah. Uh, uh, that's not where you want to be, Shoddy. That's not, that's, uh, it's less than ideal. Shoddy, you must no, have been on the I, night stages as well as the day stages. <laughs> I want very much so. I did come back considerably lighter than I left. <laughs> our, our final, our final welcome of the day, Kit Nicholson, not Kit Davidson. I'm pretty sure I said that correctly both uh, times. But welcome back, Kit. I was hoping you wouldn't mention that. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a friend of mine over the weekend, who's an avid podcast listener, reminded me that we never really did kind of a, a proper intro for you, Kit. Um, because our podcast listeners may not really know who you are. You're our weekend web editor for the website, but people just don't read bylines, I think, all that often. They may they may not recognize the name. So very briefly, 
Who are you? What would you say you do here, Kit? Oh, okay. Well, I'm Kit Nicholson. I live in Edinburgh, where it is sunny today for once. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I um, man the news desk at the weekends and, uh, yeah, enjoy watching the races and picking up stories and uh, occasionally uh, appear during the week to uh, help out or fill in some gaps and then get to I don't know, talk to these guys in the podcast from time to time. Bit of a news mercenary for us at the moment. Uh, drop in, drop in where we need you. Yeah. Well, she's, she's the one that keeps us afloat at the weekend while everybody else is, um, <laughs> yeah, not working. I didn't want to say it, but yes, I, I, it, sometimes I exist to give everybody else a day off, which is fine. That's cool. I get the weekend. <laughs> but it's also, it's actually, it's also genuinely kind of one of the, uh, higher stress positions, I would say, at Cycling Tiffs because you're often online with nobody else, whereas most people have somebody else to sub or edit their work and you have to do sort of do things end to end and cover some of the biggest stages of the biggest bike races on the planet, which is part of the reason why we want to have you on the podcast more on Mondays in particular, because you have always watched pretty much every second yes. of every bike race happening on the weekend. This is true. Yes. This is a useful thing. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to do a little welcome. Uh, and let our listeners know who Kit is. Before we get into the show, though, Shoddy Dave, we'd like to hear from Whoop today. What do we got? Yeah. Whoop with us again. You've heard us talk about it before, about how, how they help Kaylee get to bed nice and early. But throughout the year, <laughs> Whoop is partnering with EF Pro Cycling and VLON to give cycling fans a behind-the-scenes look at what riders' live heart rates are doing during the race, along with everything off the bike, including recovery, training and sleep data over the course of a grand tour. Whoop isn't just for the professionals though, as we've said before, it's for everybody, whether you're an avid cyclist or just getting started. Whoop is there to help you understand your body better. It's not just another fitness tracker. What do you say? You've uh, you've been using it and you're just an average Joe, aren't you, Kaylee, on the bike? <laughs> I, literally the definition of an average Joe. Uh, yeah, I, I like I said on a recent episode, I've been wearing it now for a couple of weeks and I found it I found it really interesting to kind of watch what the non-bicycle riding things in my life do to my recovery store, score and things like that. Like for example, over the weekend I was at a wedding. Uh I had as you might expect a couple late nights and a few negronis uh over the course of that weekend and with no riding and no running and no exercise whatsoever, my recovery score remained absolutely level at about 40%, which is not particularly good. 35%, which is not particularly good. Uh, basically because I wasn't sleeping and I was drinking too many Negronis. It's interesting that, that this little strap on my wrist can essentially pick up on bad life habits <laughs> in, in my life. Not to say that going to weddings is necessarily a bad life habit, but I was not treating my body particularly well over the weekend. And I, I'm just kind of amazed that this little thing can actually, can actually pick up on that. Uh, I think it's using like heart rate variability to do that. I haven't looked into the science of it too much yet, but I believe that is the number here on my little phone that is indicating that I'm not recovering. And then last night, I got seven hours and 47 minutes of sleep because I went to bed at nine 30, like it told me to. Uh, and I'm 94% recovered. So it's, it's shockingly accurate. And I'm going to go for a bike ride later and hopefully I feel good. So what you're saying, if you've got a heart, it 
could be good for you. So I'm guessing quite a few of our audience have got heart. But anyway, they have just released their new <laughs> 4.0 model. It's even smaller and smarter, designed with new biometric tracking. You can get yours if you've got heart today by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And then you enter the code tips at the checkout to get a whopping, a whooping, sorry, I should say, 15% off. Thanks to Whoop for sponsoring today's episode. And I've had a couple of you reach out and say that you've already used this code. We love that. We love hearing that uh, we're helping we're helping our sponsors out here. So yeah, if you go buy a Whoop, let us know. All right. On with the Giro. And other things. we got some other things to talk about today as well, including a, a 3D printed stem. Uh, of questionable aesthetics, I would say. We'll get to that at the end of the show in our little nerd nugget. But Jiro is where we want to kick off. There was a little news item last week that we we kind of missed, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but we just wanted to mention really briefly here. So the Jiro has requested it wants to move dates. Shadi, you were the one that brought this to my attention. What what What's going on here? Yeah, basically, they want to shift the start of the Jiro a week later than they usually do because there's a, a, na- a national holiday in Italy that would then cause it to fall within the Giro's dates. Obviously, that should bring a lot more fans roadside. But also, I think they're wanting to do it because of uh, the weather. Moving it an extra week later might stop them uh, hitting well bad weather later on in the race when they're, they're climbing the high mountains because we have seen over the years... Riders battle snow drifts and the big one, uh, many people remember, Andy Hempstead riding through the snow at the Giro 25 odd years ago. So they want to avoid that, even though it's good for uh, those TV images, epic TV images. It was longer ago. It was 89, 89 Giro, I believe. So that was the year after I was born, which makes it, I think, like 30. How old am I now? 32, 32 years. (laughs) My maths is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Andy Hampton, wonderful, wonderful man, by the way, um, lives in my former hometown of Boulder, Colorado. I used to run into him every once in a while. I did a piece, big piece for back when I worked for Velenews for about uh, about Andy and that particular day on the Gavia. Uh, I'm sure you can still find it on the Internet if you just Google it. There's There's been plenty of stories written about it, but that was a that was a spectacular day at the Giro. And it does sound like that's kind of what they're trying to avoid. I also like the idea of the Giro having its own Bastille Day. Right. Because that, that sounds like essentially what they're really looking for is, you know, the Tour de France every year, they've got July 14th. They usually make it a big, important stage. I think it's Alpe d'Huez this year. I'm pretty sure I'd have to double check. I was just doing all the bookings. I should know this. <laughs> but anyway, they've got Bastille Day and it's a day when obviously nobody has work. Fans everywhere. It's always crazy. You know, the Frenchman always wants to win out of the breakaway or whatever. It would be cool if the Giro had the same thing. Uh, and at the moment, this holiday it comes about a week too late. Uh, but if they moved it a little bit, then then it would work out. So I kind of like this idea. I don't I'm not opposed to it. It would obviously make it even more difficult to uh, to do the Giro Tour double or to even just race both, even if you don't want to win both. But I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure that that's the biggest concern, really. You're right. It is the outdoor stage for uh, Bastille Day this year. So that should be absolutely more mental than normal. There's your hot Which also tip. explains why I, 
which also explains why I couldn't find a hotel on Altuis that night. So we have to drive back down the mountain and across the way to Ladue's Alp. Sorry, no, what we need to do is on the tour get with me there at that early. Point. <laughs> what we need to do is get there early, ride up it on the bikes, laptops in the bag, obviously, recording equipment, whatnot, and then descend down later on, trying to avoid all that's the crazies. actually genuinely that's kind of what I was thinking. Is if the weather's like okay, we'll just ride up the mountain and do our work by bike or walk up it or something. We'll see. It's a it's a long way. the The biggest obstacle here is probably the likes of Criterion de Dauphiné and Tour de Suisse and the other races that happen in that time frame. Um, I guess twenty twenty proves that anything is possible. But you know, there there is a sort of set calendar, and it, the riders who come out of the Giro sometimes go to the Dauphiné, perform well. All the riders prepping for the Tour go to the Dauphiné and build up towards the Tour. It's it's not just as simple as moving a week later, is it? No, and there might be other races that are collateral and have to feel like they have to move as well, or yeah. But at the same time, the UCI is totally fine with Paranis and Torino running at the same time. So I, 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 I'm not sure that that will stop the UCI from giving this the rubber stamp. And you know, to be perfectly honest, like whenever we talk about calendar stuff, and thank goodness we haven't had to talk about calendar stuff in quite some time. But whenever we do, like if it's the Giro, if it if it knocks some smaller race to a different time. I know it 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 kind of hurts to say it but like it's the it's the Giro it should it should have a premium time slot uh and I think that in until cycling starts to really kind of get cutthroat about that sort of thing uh well we'll we'll just sort of continue to peter along as it has been I I don't think they should move or like overlap with other races because if the UCI is serious about like looking after riders health and then you bang two races close together or overlapping two major races, like like Ronan says, get it too close to Dauphiné or Tour de Suisse, something like that. You're gonna, you need to give riders time to recover or not to stretch teams too thinly, because that we've seen it this year with teams turning up to races with not the normal amount of riders because. They've got riders who are real, riders who are off. So you, you, riders are already getting tired. So you've you got to wonder if that would be a case with moving the, the Giro to overlap with other races. Yeah, I wonder if you could just like run the Dauphiné and the Tour de Suisse at the same time. I mean, they effectively, they overlap by a day anyway, and so you can't do both anyway. Yeah, again, if they're just tune-up races, I would prefer that there's just one of them, to be perfectly honest, if there's just one tune-up race for the Tour de France. But if there's going to be two smoosh them into the same spot, run the Giro a week later. I don't know. I haven't spent that much time thinking about where the Giro should be. But I do like the idea of, a, of an Italian... What, what is the holiday? What's the, what's the Italian holiday? I mean, just the fact that like it's an we non-French people know what Bastille Day is because of the Tour de France. Like, I think that, that is, that's a cool thing, and the Giro should have access to that. It's, uh, so the Italian national holiday on June 2nd is Festa della Repubblica, which... My Italian isn't perfect, ah. but I believe that means Vincenzo Nibali Day. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that that's something to do with like the formation of Italy into one single unit, like 150 years ago or whenever that was. Not that long ago, because uh, it was like a bunch of kingdoms beforehand. My Italian history is not amazing, uh, but that sounds like one of those. Yeah, well, Republic Day, right? The day we became a republic. Anyway, let's move on from calendar discussions. We discussed that for 
way too long already and get back to the Giro itself. Like I said, it is Monday, the rest day, where we are chatting with you right now. Kit, where does the GC stand at the moment? It is, it's tight. It's what, top five is all within about a minute? Uh, it's tight, yeah. It's not as tight as it was, but um, there are five riders within a minute and a second of uh, new race leader Richard Carapaz. Um, but then, yeah, if you go down to the bottom of the top 10, Guillaume Martin is at 8.02. So it's starting to sort itself out. He might be at eight minutes, but let's just have a look. One, two, three, four, four, four mountainous stages left. That's two minutes per mountain stage that he can pull back. <laughs> yeah. And he's good at doing this. He's good at yo-yoing backwards and forwards in and out of the top 10. He's made a, well... He's certainly been doing it for the last 12 months since last year's Tour de France. Our friend and Velocla member Cam Harris has been doing some sort of data-driven, like where the GC people fall throughout this Giro and, and uh, some really cool kind of visualizations of that. And I'm, I wonder if Guillaume Martin is sort of the, the most jumpy yeah, I, I, <laughs> of all of them because he is. He's kind of bounced up and down and up and down and up and down on days when you maybe wouldn't have even expected it. Yeah, yeah that, that's yesterday's stage would be a useful expl- explainer for that. If we go back and do the stages. Well, let's let's talk a little bit how we got here. Uh, I mean, we made a podcast on Friday, so we're only talking about two stages here, but a lot has changed since Friday. Saturday. Let's start with Saturday. It was a it was a pretty wild stage. What went down? Well, Bora Hansgrohe uh, took it on um, with Jai Hindley sitting in a good position and a pretty well an epic stage let's face it the the organizers really nailed it with this uh, stage design um and a pretty good breakaway got away after a bit of a fight early on but they didn't get much time in the spotlight before Bora Hansgrohe went really hard and um basically uh, got rid of the teammates of most of their rivals including Richard Carapaz who was all on his own the only GC riders with any teammates were Pozzovivo and Lander whose teammate Bill Bow is also in the top 10 um, and yeah, they just kept going uh, into the fi- fin- uh, into the final lap um, around Turin. And when Wilco Kellerman when Wilco Kellerman's day was done, Richard Carapaz decided that the best form of defence was attack, and he went off the front really hard and went solo for uh, a good I don't know ten fifteen kilometres. And he wasn't expected, expecting to be joined by anyone. But on the final really steep, violent climb, um, Nibali attacked, took Hindley with him, and then Hindley attacked over Nibali and got up to Carapaz. And then Simon Yates joined them, um, and the four of them uh, rode in towards the finish. And while the GC riders were watching each other, Yates decided this stage was his, and he attacked them and soloed to the finish um, for a resurgent stage win after a less than well I don't know a bad luck Giro so far and Hindley came second and Carapaz third and into the pink jersey this was one of the most kind of dynamic Grand Tour stages we've seen in quite some time I think uh and actually we've had a number of the we've had a couple of these already this Giro we were talking before we hit record here about these short stages and also these circuit stages um that the Giro has been using what do we think is the most what do we think is making the difference here what what do we think is making the Giro so 
dynamic this year? I think in terms of Saturday, in a way, it was definitely that the course that the organizers had planned. You know, when we looked at it during the podcast on Friday, we were sort of, you know, hesitant to say, well, I think I basically said that there wouldn't be any GC attacks um, because of how hard the days had been before that, because of how hot the temperatures were forecast for Saturday. But as soon as the live pictures came on and we seen Bora coming to the front, it was sort of immediately obvious how on the ambush was on Saturday, given that, you know, how tiny the roads were, how steep the climbs were. Anybody in the race from that area or anybody who has ridden Giro del uh, Torino, I think it's called, surely must have known that. And I think that's pretty much what, what Bora had, had done. They had seen how small these roads were going to be. And, you know, immediately as soon as they got on that first ascent of the one of the main climbs, they just, uh, they, they sort of bided their time until they got near the top. But then once they had the sort of some of the climb in sight and knew the descent was going to be that technical, they really went full gas on the front. And it just meant that there was, it was chaos behind. There was no time for any sort of organization, no time for teams to get together. I think there was just about time and luck for most of the GC riders to to make the front split. And that really set us up for the rest of the day. And And once, you know, it was... Uh, one team in control. There was no opportunity for all the riders to come back, given the terrain that was involved. It was it was kind of a case of with there being so many GC riders in front on their own on such a tough day. It was always going to make for exciting racing. And you know, a lot of kept to the next piece of the weekend, looking at you know the the merits of these shorter stages and circuit finishes and grand tours and that. And what it really reminded me of in hindsight was like. You go to any amateur race in Brittany and Western France, and you're going to see that type of racing week in, week out. And it's like, sometimes when you say amateur, it's it's sort of seen or heard as a sort of lower class thing or something. I don't know, but it's sometimes the most exciting racing. And that's really what Saturday brought us back to, was that state of racing that all these guys would have done as amateurs, and they just put it on our TV screens. And if there was a way to ensure we could have that on our TV screens every week, I guarantee you cycling would be a much bigger sport than it currently is. I'd have to agree with Ronan regarding the Brittany racing. I used to race for a team up there and it is exactly like that. And if anybody actually caught the, I'm trying to think of the the women's race that was on up that way about two weeks ago now, they'll realise that. Uh, that that was a ra- that that's the sort of racing that goes on up there. It was at there's a stage that uh, finished in Pond TV, and it was an absolute belter of a stage with um, one of the women from uh, is it Top Girls Fasa Bortola team breaking away early and just off on her own. And it was it it was it was on one of the same day as one of the G roll stages, and it was only broadcast live on Facebook. And I mu- must admit, I was watching that rather than the G roll because it was exactly like Ronan says. The racing up there is very exciting, very, very exciting, lumpy, hard work. We've seen it at last year's Tour de France when it started in uh, Brest, that it can be awesome racing up there. And yeah, if we can take that sort of racing and put it into a, a, a grand tour like they did on state Saturday stage, then yeah, like we say, we should be bringing bunches of fans across, new fans across, because it's exciting racing. We saw what is it, twenty eighteen, the the tour try something different with an even shorter stage. Was it sixty five k stage from Banyos de Luchon? And it it wasn't 
it wasn't anything special. He even did that stupid uh, grid start for that stage. And it just, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it didn't really light the race up at all. It kind of fell flat. So obviously, yeah, loops around major cities is something that Grand Tours should definitely be looking at. Secondly, can I just gloat? Because Friday stage, I predicted something like this would happen. So there's clearly not enough pro teams listening to our podcast because <laughs> they all got caught out. If they'd listened, they might have might have done a bit better. We also had the fantastic uh, stage eight that Degent won. Obviously, not the GC race, but that was you know those, those laps all in the city centre. And again, you've got like you had on Saturday. If it's a circuit, then fans are going to stick around, and if the weather's good, fans are going to be there and create an, just an electric atmosphere, which only adds to the racing. If we could get like an annual Tour de France stage or Giro stage. Like this, it could like the Champs Elysees is the sprinters' world classics or world championships unofficially. This could be like the Grand Tour riders' unofficial world championships if we could have a, a street circuit with you know round about what was it 140 kilometers of racing, three and a half thousand meters of climbing packed into one stage. You know, that 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 is when you turned on your TV on Saturday, it, it didn't matter if you were you know following every stage of and every second of the Giro so far or if that was the first footage you'd seen it was exciting just to watch regardless of you know who was in the lead who was where on GC it was it was just exciting racing that i think anybody could relate to you just kind of hope that that organizers are doing a bit of a bit of a postmortem right like a bit of a, like what like what made that work what what exactly was it that made that work because I mean, Grand Tours don't exist in a vacuum, or Grand Tour stages don't exist in a vacuum either, right? Like, the way that racers race them depends on what came before, depends on what came after, depends on what's on the stage itself. So, like, that makes it really hard to sort of predict what stages is actually going to be good, what stages is actually going to be bad. But I'm sure you can kind of go through and figure out some of the commonalities between these spectacular stages. And the one that is clearly identifiable from this Giro is just the laps, right? And Ronan, you kind of you kind of got at why that that is a little bit, but like that seems to be the big difference between, for example, the stuff that ASO has tried at the Tour de France and the super short stages and the Bagnard de Luchon and the grid start and kind of those the gimmicky stuff. What they haven't done a whole lot at the Tour is is these sort of lap stages, and that seems to have made a difference. If only because let's let's be honest here, like the peloton, the top riders will have gone and checked out the key stages, right? Most of the peloton is essentially riding blind most of the time. There, there's someone in their ear telling them if there's some, you know, something coming up on the road. They know where the major climbs are, but they don't actually know what they're racing. And a lap circuit, particularly if they do more than I think they only did two laps right over on, on Saturday. If they did a couple more laps than that. The two or three. Uh, anyway, once they've seen the roads. You know, they get to pick out points to attack. They get to they they know exactly what the descent looks like. They know if the descent is good or bad for a breakaway. All these things that normally a Grand Tour Peloton, like I said, is basically riding blind. They have a director that will tell them these things, but until you've seen it yourself, you, that's not super helpful. I wonder if that is having an impact on on the aggressiveness of the racing. It's just the fact that like, oh, we've done the circuit already. I know exactly how long it is. I know exactly where I want to go. I know exactly the pinch points. I'm going to go here and I'm going to, and I'm going to fully go for it. I think maybe we have a case of grand tours being too attached to their history because certainly the Tour de France, it's, you know, it used to be uh, way back when a lap of the, the country. So it was 
A to B rather than, so there wasn't really a facility. There wasn't really an opportunity to have these laps um, and the short stages. Um, it's that sort of, I mean, yeah, the tour is not going to be the innovative one, but it's the Giro is able to be, you know, to make use of these fantastic city routes for some action-packed racing. I think a key thing here too is just the terrain, it, you know, because the, the tour stages that we've mentioned have all been in the high mountains. And the first one I remember is the day Thomas Folkler lost the yellow jersey in the 2011 tour. Um, but since then, they've all been in the high mountains, whereas this Giro stage uh, and the and the one around Napoli and, uh, you know, other stages like this, like the, the final stage of Tour of Catalonia, they tend to be shorter and not in the high mountains. Hilly terrain, but not in the high mountains. And, and that just means that the riders can afford to be a bit more aggressive, can afford to be, take a bit more risk, uh, go on the attack a, a bit more often, knowing that, you know, any climb is only going to be uh, X amount of minutes or whatever. But they've they've got the opportunity to launch an attack that the high, high mountains doesn't, doesn't provide. And I think as well, we should probably, you know, as good as the stage was, and as the old saying often goes, that, you know, it's it's the riders who make a race. And we need to give credit to, to Bora here as well for really, you know, pressing this this opportunity home and, and taking the lead from so far into the stage and going so hard from the second that they came onto the front of the bunch that, you know, that that was really what set Saturday up to be such such an epic stage. And I think it's actually <clears throat> looking at why why Carapaz felt the need to attack from like twenty nine kilometers to the finish, because at that point it was like the first point in the day where Hindley was on his own in the front group with Noel Bora teammates. And he probably looked at it and thought, you know, this Bora team here, they have the upper hand on my Enios squad. We we can't really do our Enios train thing and and get rid of the Bora team because they've proved that they're probably better climbers than than the Enios squad. Um, so I think he just, you know, he's seen that as an opportunity to actually build a sustainable or a large advantage that would give him a bit of breathing space in the high mountains should he find himself isolated. And obviously it didn't work out, but, you know, it was probably, you know, combined with those shorter climbs where you can take a bit of extra risk, a sort of a, an opportunity that he thought he couldn't couldn't pass up on. And, and that's maybe why he attacked from so far out because it was that attack, you know, the race favourite attacking from 30 kilometres to go. We don't often see that in the Grand Tour anymore. And it was it was just brilliant to see. Like, it, you, didn't, you didn't know what was going to come next. No, and he did say after the stage that he was very surprised that anybody came back to him. He thought that that was it and that he would be home free. But I think he was taken by surprise that so many people were quite so well matched to his ability. Yeah, I imagine he was in that situation thinking, you know, if I'm suffering here, everybody's suffering, so now is the time to attack. Um, and <laughs> thankfully... Some writers did come back to him, and it, and it kept the the Giro alive. Because I'll gloat for a second. One, well, the only prediction I think I made right on Friday was that uh, we would quickly lose the 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 you know top ten writers all within one minute. We would quickly be whittled down to just a few. Uh, and I also predicted that Sunday might be a bit of a bore fest, and that turned out to be true. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing we've got to remember about, I suppose, these sort of stages, and if they were going to put them into a grand tour is that you wouldn't have that um the ambush nature that happened on Saturday, like the unpredictability of it, because people would wouldn't teams would learn over time that th this is going to be the stage where it's happened. So I would have thought you would have had to throw a couple of stages in like that, really, to sort of throw a few curveballs. 
because otherwise, yeah, teams are just going to know like this is this is the stage where it's going to happen, like they do when previously when the high mountains hit. Yeah, and, and I should say that like the tour has had some success with different types of stages before. I mean, I think it was twenty seventeen to Foix was like a hundred k stage. Went over the Mur de Piguer. Um that one was was fully chaotic and and ended in 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 this sort of like reduced bunch sprint and GC riders all over the place and I mean it was it was it worked right like it, it has it has worked in the Tour de France before I think it was Warren Barguil that, that won that stage but it was like him and sprinting against Quintana and Contador and like Chris Froome lost two minutes and it was a good it was a good stage. Again, it's just how do you make that happen? How do you make that happen? Not every time, because it, it does come down to what the racers, how they're incentivized on that given day. But how do you make that happen more often than not? And it seems like the Giro has a bit of a, a bit of a formula now. And, and and frankly, like you have to know that they, they see that right. Like they 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 probably see increased engagement. I mean, the numbers probably show for them that 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 was a good stage, and you'd hope that they would continue to to run more of them basically. Uh, and you'd hope that ASO would go and look and say, well, we should maybe try this at, at the Vuelta. We should try this at the Tour de France. We should, we should figure out what the factors were that led to this and embrace them. I dare say, if you go back through history, the tour probably has done local laps, I guess often in maybe 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, when, when it wasn't quite the, the show that it is now. And it, it was sort of more, um, yeah, you know, you had split stages and you had hundred kilometer team time trials and stuff like that. I dare say they had some local laps as well. But I'm just going to interrupt this broadcast for a second to bring you news that Ellen Van Dyke has attempt started her attempt at the uh, UCI R record uh, and is now underway and has completed a lap. So she's a few more to go, but on her way. How many laps is that race running? That race is uh, a lot of laps. I'm interested to see how long it takes her. Uh, she's uh-huh. going. She's she's in the green so far, so maybe she's going to do the R and under an hour. <laughs> we'll keep you updated throughout today's podcast on how Ellen is doing. Uh, you know, by the time you get this, it'll be done. Yeah, <laughs> we'll uh, give you one, the one thing anyway. maybe that is worth mentioning uh, that will still be relevant when you hear this podcast is uh, I just put it up on my Instagram a, a quick screenshot of the weather forecast for Grenchen today, and the atmospheric pressure is like absolutely ridiculously low it's the kind of pressure that you just you couldn't you couldn't w- possibly wish for on a record attempt day and the first person to reply to my story was dan bigham uh, of course uh joss <laughs> Lydon's partner and he said to me that is ridiculously good weather about 17 millibar lower than joss and himself had last year and he reckons that's worth just that drop in pressure is worth a good 290 meters uh, so more than a lap just from wow. conditions that you can't control. Is this an opportunity to mention that Ghana is going to be doing his hour record in the same venue in a few months? He's announced it finally. So he's going to yep. break wait. the record and destroy it and nobody's going to be able to beat it ever, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll just have to go to Mexico. That's what they'll yeah. have to do. Yeah, Because the only way to, to, to combat that is to go up to altitude, I would say. Yeah. Um, real altitude. Hey, can anyway. I just drag it? Can I just drag it back? I'm just thinking out loud with regards to shorter stages. Now we've got a tour, tour de femme avec Zwift coming up. 
shorter stage, like obviously the, the the women's stages are shorter, but how ace would it be if they use the the ASO went down the route of having shorter stages for the explosive nature for the for the um, spectacle of the men's race, and then ran the the women's race on the same days as they're having this. I don't know a week, eight days of all these short stages. You could have both. I think you're getting, into, you're getting into a deeper a, a deeper yeah. debate over whether over whether women's races should should exist solo or in line with existing men's events. And I, that is a debate that we have had a couple different times. Freewheeling has had that debate numerous times, and and I know Abby and Amy fall on a particular side of that debate. But let's not have that debate again right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking out loud. Just thinking out loud. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, having covered having covered La Course a number of times, which is essentially it's usually on, this, on a bit of the same course as the men's race the same day. From a media perspective, it makes it much easier to cover both. Uh, from a fan perspective, I I unclear. Uh, from a growth of women's cycling's pr- perspective, I think that's where the real debate lies. But we'll we'll leave that there. We will come back to that uh, at some point. I'm sure there'll be much discussion of that when. We're covering both the Tour de France and the Tour de France Femme avec Swift, uh, which obviously we will be doing with with big old teams. I was like I said, I was booking booking things recently, and I believe I believe we're gonna have like have like six or seven people on the race for, for a little while. Wild times here at Cycling Tips. All right, let's pull it back to the Giro. Let's pull it back to the Giro. So we wrap up Saturdays. Phenomenal stage, super exciting, crazy stuff happening all day. What did it do to the overall? Where where were we standing at the end of of stage fourteen? Well, I think Juan Pedro Lopez should get an enormous amount of credit for how long he stuck with the GC contenders. He was one of a twelve man group um, that Bora Hansgrohe created. Um, he ultimately was dropped though and slipped to I think eight o- eighth overall by the end of the day uh, as Carapaz uh, took the pink jersey. But only seven seconds ahead of Jai Hindley as Joao Almeida jumped up to third and into the young rider's jersey at a deficit of 30 seconds. Um, but then I suppose the biggest moves were towards the... We expected Lopez to drop. He, he dropped to ninth. But the, there were big gaps between first and tenth by the end of Saturday's stage with Valverde more than nine minutes down. I wonder if Lopez will kind of rue his decision to to stick with the the real GC contenders for a little bit too long. He did follow the moves day. pretty I mean, hard. Yeah. And, and it, it, it ended poorly for him. Like I appreciate the effort. And I, I think that in the moment it'd be really hard to just like play that tactically, but now he's in ninth and, and let's, let's be honest. Like he's been riding well enough that if he had just ridden inside himself and maybe, maybe he hangs on to a top six or a top five, which he can then try to defend for the next week. And, you know, the guy could end up in the top 10 of, of a Grand Tour, which is not something that he was probably expecting to do at the beginning of this race. So I, I wonder if he's ruining that decision a little bit. I think he probably will stay in the top 10. Yeah. I expect, I mean, the, the, the gap from him to next is over four minutes. I don't know. He, he, it's only one, a lot of it's only one bad day in the mountains, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. 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 Let's get into Sunday. Uh, not as exciting, but by any stretch of the imagination, but that's because the bar was set so very high on Saturday. 
What went down on Sunday? Well, the breakaway took a very long way to go. Um, there was a bit of a nervous moment very early on when Carapaz was one of the riders caught up in a pretty big crash, but it looks like the only damage is to his jersey. Um, so once the breakaway went, it was very big and it started to fight within itself quite early. But Vanderpol went pretty early, decided he didn't want to ride with 20 other riders. He was ultimately dropped and the guys who fought it out for the stage were Giulio Ciccone, Hugh Carthy, who had dropped out of the GC race, uh, Santiago Buitrago and uh, Movistar Domestique, Antonio Pedrero. Um, and Ciccone was clearly the strongest um, and he attacked at the bottom of the last climb um, and left his companions behind to take a very emotional stage win that I think went down very well, particularly with the Italian fans at the finish. Meanwhile, GC race, nothing happened except for Guillaume Martin going on a long range attack, stealthy and taking and getting back into the top 10. How dare you say Speaking. nothing happened when you got Guillaume Martin going up the road? <laughs> <laughs> That's big I news. Do, yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed his little move. Um, I enjoyed watching the the uh, Ineos Grenadiers led peloton do absolutely nothing. Um, you think has you think has Graham Martin ever heard uh, Newton's third law about for every action there's an opposite reaction? Like, sh- you want the attack <laughs> on one stage, you're going to pay for it on the next, and hence this whole yo-yo effect that we're getting <laughs> every stage he's, race he enters. He's been here before, hasn't he? But I think yeah, it quit little discussion about it yesterday. Uh, you know, it seems like he would be in a good position to go after a stage win, but he has been in the top 10 the last two Grand Tours, the Tour last year of the Vuelta. So maybe he's just trying to create a streak. Um, who knows? He's got some big mountains to come. He's a, he's a bright lad, like he's a oh, yeah. philosophy book, and he? One that I have started to read, but... Um, yeah, probably only got a few pages and I was planning on reviewing it for cycling tips, but tough reading French. But yeah, he, he I say he's a bright lad. He should know about, uh, was it Newton's third law? <laughs> it, it is good to see something like that though. Something that you you don't generally see from a GC leader of a team being able to do and the rest of the peloton kind of not reacting at all. Well, his face barely reacted either. It was so calm and gentle. It was just, he knew what he was doing and it was just something that he had decided he was going to do and it was going to happen without any, without too much bother. It was, it was like he was turning up for work and he was getting it done. <laughs> Kofidis is uh, just above the relegation zone as well. So, a you know, a, a top 10 for him in this in this. Jiro would be a pretty big deal. It would be a it'd be a bunch of points, and I have to imagine that his bosses are are you know giving him the nod that direction. Now, one could argue, as Ronan was intimating before, that he might be better off just being consistent. Uh, but as cycling fans who want to watch interesting bike racing, I am for one, I'm very glad that he is not. He could get 120 points for finishing tenth, or he could get a hundred multiple times for winning stages. <laughs> Sorry, 120 quid for finishing 10th on GC. 120 no, points. No, points. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I've missed it. I've got, I've got one eye on the uh, hour record. So, I'm, I'm <laughs> How many laps has she done now? She's done 12 minutes, 27 seconds. Lap 40. 
She's still exactly, in the green? Exactly 10 kilometers. Yeah. She's still in the green by 18.2 seconds. Which I Ooh. imagine is about a lap, I'm guessing. I, I haven't been watching it that closely, but sounds a bit red. What a brutal event. On Gear Marta anyway. again. Um, and the GC race. Um, and consistency. Um, all the above. Um, what was interesting is that Vincenzo Nibali finished after Guillaume Martin on Etna, which is where he had his first bad day. But Vincenzo Nibali has been the much more consistent rider in steadily climbing up the GC. And he's doing pretty darn well for what I think he was expecting to be a stage hunt for his last year. Nibali is looking very, very good. And, you know, especially with some of the stages coming up in this week uh, and some of the descents in particular, uh, given the climbing display that he put on on Saturday, now different story in the high mountains, uh, as we've already alluded to in this podcast. But he certainly has to be one of the favourites for at least a podium at this point, given the performances we've seen the last few days. Um, so yeah, he's, he's sort of he's uh, gone from stage hunting or disappointing in his Edna performance to now being certainly one of the one of the favourites for the race. I think. I wonder how much is it if it's down to him being back at Astana because that, that's when he was previously at it before his trek days. That's where he was in his glory days. Or do we go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, this isn't a video podcast. Um, <laughs> there were some facial expressions just when you said that. Uh, I'll just I leave think, it. I'll I just leave it, it that. Was, uh, I think it was. <laughs> Ronan was shocked at uh, how, how good. And then Van Dyke's doing that's that's what the facial expression that, was definitely at. <laughs> that's exactly what we were all uh shocked at. I want to move on. <laughs> I want to move on from what's happened in the Giro. And actually, before we get into what's coming in the Giro, which we will run through briefly, uh, there was a really interesting stage of Burgos, Vuelta Burgos, uh, won by Demi Volering. Um but the, the sort of implications of this are broader because we were looking at the final climb. Ronan, you were looking this up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it over to you. But we were looking at the final climb, and it, it it's well, it was not an easy one. The the sort of the things that have happened on this climb in the past indicate to us that this is potentially a bit of a preview, potentially of what should be one of the sort of key climbing stages of the entire season which is when the women's peloton races up La Planche de Belfi at the end of the Tour de France. What, do, what, what can we learn from this, this Burgos stage looking ahead all the way to the end of July? Uh, well, it was just yesterday when I heard that Ballering had won the stage uh, and seen that it was a mountaintop finish, I immediately started uh, thinking back to our podcast this time last week when I had questioned Demi Ballering's ability to get up such summit finishes <laughs> um again being proved wrong uh but yeah so then I, I sort of thought to myself i wonder what kind of claim that is and when i look back through the recent history of that claim it's only ever really appeared in the vuelta burgos um but all their winners include anna van der Breggen, hugh carthy even sosa uh nairo quintana esteban chavez Mikel landa you know, a who's who of climbing ability in, in both World Tour pelotons. And it sort of got me questioning, you know, well, it, it, it's it's probably not as long. I think it's about 11 kilometers, up to 1,600 meters. Probably not in the same category as Planche de Belfi, but certainly it's, you know, following on from a clean sweep 
in Asturias, or not Asturias, but uh, Basque Country the week before, Itzulia, you know, what, what is it that Demi Valerian can't do now? It's, it seems to be every week we have to come back to the same question. Yeah, and she was in hospital for a couple of days last week as well. Yes, exactly. That was to, makes yeah. it all the more remarkable. Something to keep an eye on, for sure. Yeah, like you said, it's not, not a perfect mirror of Laplanche, which is longer, but 11K isn't short, right? I, I feel like at some point, once you get beyond like maybe 7, 8K, it's just a long climb at that point. Like anybody, any of the riders who are good at short climbs, it's too long for them. And so, yeah, a, a, an interesting little preview, perhaps. Uh, something to help us make picks when we get to Laplanche at the end of July. Yeah, by the same token, Juliette Labousse and Evita Musique were on a really good, were particularly good on the climb. Juliette Labousse took the overall and Evita Musique, the young rider, came third uh, overall. So, and obviously their targets are going to be the tour. Absolutely, yeah. A quick look there and the Strava for the Plants de Belfi is 21 minutes and the Strava for yesterday's uh, Lagunas de Niela I probably destroyed that pronunciation but uh, that was 24 minutes so it's actually a longer climb than Plants de Belfi's in pure Strava terms Interesting Laplanche sort of starts before the Laplanche starts before the start really having been up it before but ah, that's interesting so they're, they're probably actually closer than we think then uh, the yeah. you know but as you were sort of alluding to there the level in the tour will probably be somewhat higher. No, you know, no disrespect to yesterday's race or anything, but the tour is the tour, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bollering will it'll have be, company. Be, yes, Bollering will absolutely. I mean, she may she may not even be the leader of her own of her own team. <laughs> we don't we don't know. Uh, <laughs> like that's I, that's one of the. It's going to be a fascinating finale to that race. Is it's just like women's peloton doesn't tackle a ton of big uphill finishes. In, in races, um, lots of short ones, lots of medium ones, but not a whole lot of big uphill finish. I mean, the Giro Rosa is one of the only places that kind of consistently has like, we're going to finish this thing on the top of the Mortarolo or, or whatever it is. Uh, and so there's a lot of unknowns, which, which should make it interesting coming in and interesting racing. I do want to get back to the Giro shoddy, but before we do, please tell me about Hammerhead. Right. We have got the Hammerhead crew to uh, supporting us this week. The question is, do you want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance, time and pace? How about advanced GPS navigation and the ability to see upcoming hills? The Hammerhead Crew 2 helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential. Something we all need, I'm sure. The Hammerhead Crew 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options so you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Carew 2. All you need to do, you kind listeners, is visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use the promo code cycling tips and you'll get that free uh, custom color kit and premium water bottle with a purchase of a Carew too. So 
Go on, tap in hammerhead.io, add all three items to your car and use the promo code Cycling Tips today, tomorrow, whenever you've got time. Thanks to Hammerhead for sponsoring today's episode. We need to return to the Giro because we need to talk about some of the stages that are coming up briefly. There, well, there's big mountain stages coming up. This is when we were talking about the last week of the Giro and how important it would be a couple weeks ago. Well, we are there. We are at the last week of the Giro. Ronan, what's coming up? Uh, well, straight out of the rest day into stage 16 and 200 kilometer, 202 kilometers from Salo to Aprica, including the uh, Paso del Mortarolo, the infamously st- uh, steep climb that often sees riders walking and all sorts. And that's only midway through the, the stage. There's plenty of difficulties after that, including a very technical descent into the finish in Aprica. Uh, stage 17 doesn't get much easier 170 kilometers again with uh, two first category climbs in the finale stage stage 18 is the last opportunity for the sprinters into Trevisio and stage 19 is another somewhat mountainous test mid uh, first category midway through the stage and finishes on a second category summit finish and then the second last stage next Saturday stage 20 takes us to from Belluno to Marmolada, 170 kilometers, give or take, and finishes at the top of the Paso Marmolada at 2,057 meters above sea level before the final 17 kilometer time trial in Verona next Sunday. So apart from the sprinter stage in there, it's it's fairly tough throughout the final, final, final weekend. It's and nasty. If you think the gaps are big now between the top 10 and that, let's talk again this time next week (laughs) (laughs) well we will of course Uh, we'll also have another another episode on Friday where we'll talk through what happened during the week and look ahead to those two crucial final stages Saturday and Sunday I think we're actually in for some really you know if if we weren't in for some exciting racing anyway given Boar's performance at the weekend I think we're you know in for even more and, and any of us or found themselves in a bit of predicament here. You know, they've sort of set the agenda that they're happy to ride, but they 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 will not outclimb the Bora team, provided they all stay in the same form as they had at the weekend. And Bora, you know, must certainly fancy their chances of of taking it to any of us. Add to that the fact that Hindley seems to be the better sprinter than Carapaz, and the time bonuses that are on offer at each stage finish. You could find yourself in a situation where Bora wanted to bring it back to a GC race every day and Ineos wanted to go to a breakaway race every day. It's fascinating final week, I think. Yeah, you know, we we were talking after Etna about Ineos and and the fact that we saw the, you know, the Skytrain come back, basically, and how at first we were lamenting this, but the fact that it actually didn't do as much damage as they were maybe hoping, and then that proved to be the case in subsequent stages as well, you know, I think it's pretty clear here that the that Ineos is not going to do or not going to be able to do exactly what they want to be able to do over this last week. They're not really going to be able to do the sky train that Richie Port sort of threatened before the race started. And if they do try, they're more likely to leave Carapaz isolated than anything. You know, I still think that they have the strongest rider in the race. I think Carapaz is still still the strongest. I don't know if you could hear the child in the background there. I think Carapaz is still the strongest rider in this bike race. And so at some point that becomes more important than having a super strong team. But 
Ineos is not going to win this bike race for him, I don't think. I think that much is clear. Uh, and that sort of duel between them and Bora over this final week is going to be absolutely fascinating. But like I said, we'll be back on Friday to talk through what happens in the next couple of days and talk about what's coming in the final weekend of the Giro. It's now time for Nerd Nugget. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Ronan, Nerd alert. you just Nerd dropped alert. a aesthetically unique stem into the podcast channel on our slack what is this thing what what why why are why are you why, why? I, I, I like your why does it exist? Uh, i like your description there uh, in my first week with cycling tips uh our global tech editor james wong told me that the only thing i can't say is good or bad is designs and colors and stuff like that because that beauty is obviously in the eye of the beholder beyond that anything is nothing nothing is off, <laughs> off limits uh but certainly this this stem uh is right out there in terms of aesthetics it's apparently the world's first 3d printed stem uh it's from a british components brand called mythos uh you might actually know them better by their parent company name which is metron who are headed up by Dimitri Katsanis is kind of famous for his involvement with British Cycling, Team Sky, Panarello, Bradley Wiggins, 3D printed aero bars for the air record, that sort of stuff. Katsanis the UCI. Is, the UCI, yeah. has been involved in pretty much, you know, everything for the last 20 years. And most recently with those um, 3D printed titanium parameter cranks from, from Infocrank that we've seen there, uh, I think it was in February of this year. Uh, and now he has, or... My, my thoughts, I should say, have turned their attention to 3D printing a stem. Um, and I guess the sort of question is why? Uh, <laughs> would, uh, you know, why would you want a 3D print the stem? And there, there is potential benefits. It could be lighter or it could be more aero or it could be better This one's not looking. more aero. It, and, but this one isn't lighter. It isn't more aero and it isn't better looking. I'm going to go out there and say that now. <laughs> It also costs five hundred pounds, uh, so it's not cheap either. It makes me think of the hill climbing scene in the UK, um, and the well, you know the drilling holes every. Well, yes, I guess so. That's fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> this is the, the drilling holes everywhere. Yes, but this is a whole new level. This is like there, there, there are. It's not even drilling. There are actually just holes all over this, and you know. I guess, unsurprisingly, it is then compatible with all the internal cable routing systems and all that we have nowadays, uh, because you can literally just feed a cable in anywhere you want. Um, but bigger, I think a bigger picture here is is the goal. Yes, it is a stem. Uh, it is 3D printed. It's not using titanium. It's using uh, scamoloy. Uh, it's 3D printing specific material made from scandium, aluminium, I went to say aluminum, al aluminium in once there, uh, magnesium <laughs> alloy, and it actually developed by engineers at, at Airbus. Um, now, I you know, just to get to the point here a bit quicker, because we are running over time, I think the, the play here is bigger picture and that mythos or sort of, or mythos or however you pronounce the name, are sort of, you know, this has proven the concept with the 3D printed stem. If, if the stem can be up to the job, then anything on the bike might be. Um, I just wouldn't like to be the person proving that concept. I can't see how they can claim to be in the first uh, 3D printed stem because surely Bastion, the Australian company, they had a 3D printed stem out that was used uh, by the Australian 
track team. Well, that then broke. Um, <laughs> yeah, the one that broke. Yeah, which didn't go, which didn't go down so maybe, too well. But there's, there's this is also, maybe the first, the first one that hasn't broken at the Olympics. Yeah, yes. and that one, if I remember yeah. rightly, was like two grand or something stupid. Or it might be two thousand Australian dollars, but that's still crazy money. I'm not actually sure that the stem part of that was 3D printed. I can't remember. It was a one yeah, piece. Dave Rome is. But I don't know. I'm I not going to say it, one, Probably, but I don't want to say that for sure. Um, Dave Rome was paying attention to that story far more than us. So mm, the 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 main takeaway from that was that you know it it, it it I think it was 3D printed, but it was a part that failed. You know, and there 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 was an investigation done, and the, and the reasonings behind the failure uh, were were published recently by Cycling Australia. Um, but I think the the bigger concern in speaking to Dave Rome was just you know there there can be you know for all the testing that you can do with 3D printed uh, products there can be individual faults from one print to another and and Bastion does have a process in place to sort of mitigate the potential for such faults but it's by no means impossible for a fault to occur. Now, I have reached out to Mythos. I've asked them, you know, to give us a bit of background on their testing and, you know, what processes they have in place to to prevent such faults, uh, and you know, certainly bring those when we have them. But at the moment, all we sort of have is this three D printed stem that uh, is certainly divisive in terms of aesthetics. Um, is you know, it, I think it, on the right bike it could look cool. Yeah, yeah. There's, I'll say it, that it, it does on the have right its, bike it could look really cool. It, it it does have it will have its fans certainly. It can you know it 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 will be a, a conversation starter. Let's say, um, but and it's also a, you know a sign of definitely where where things are going. You know, this isn't Metron's first foray into you know three D printed uh, components. They've as I mentioned at the start of the, the uh, segment here, they've made countless products before without the best of our knowledge without any failures previously uh, and they certainly seem to be sort of let's say industry leaders certainly within the cycling industry in terms of their expertise with 3d printed products um you know and and for all we know at the moment they have a new process or whatever that you know ensures there there are no sort of concerns or whatever but it's certainly uh quite quite the piece to to look at it'll go perfectly with either that recently uh, released Canyon concept 3D printed bike, or I think Decathlon also had a, a, a concept, 3D concept bike that they'd planned on uh, showing the world at some point. Both of them built up like a, a lattice structure as well. Just to close out the nerd nugget segment today, we will just say that at the time of recording here, we're 32 minutes into Ellen Van Dyke's hour record attempt, and she's currently averaging 49.1 kilometers per hour, which is a full kilometer above the current record. Nice. They do say the final 20 minutes is the hardest in an hour record, but so far so good. It's a good start. It's a good start, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we'll update you on Ellen's hour record plus the week in the Giro, plus whatever other little tech, t- tech tidbits we can dig up this week. We'll be back with another special Giro episode on Friday. Thanks for joining me, Kit, Shoddy, Ronan. And we'll be back next week. No, end of this week. I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I need some coffee. 